the Joes go in country. It's kind of a crossover. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. I have one comic book for you this time around, and it will be my last issue of G.I. Joe Special Missions, which is issue number 8 of the series, and that came out on August 25th, 1987. Retailing for $1, the cover is by Mike Zeck and shows Leatherneck hanging out of a chopper and reaching for low light while Beachhead provides cover fire, and I'd be remiss if I didn't include this clip. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! Anyway, our story is called Ambush, and our creative team is Larry Hama, writer, Herb Trimpey, artist, Phil Felix, letterer, Bob Sharon, colorist, Bob Harris, editor, and Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. We open somewhere in Southeast Asia. A black C-47 Dakota slips across the border into unfriendly territory. On board is a Joe special ops team that is going to be parachuting into the jungle to head off a convoy. That convoy, according to his CIA contact named Anderson, is carrying a government employee named Theron Portland. Portland, Anderson tells the Joes, is a traitor and a spy. He has stolen important microchip technology that he is selling to the Russians. The Joes are tasked with taking out the convoy and bringing Portland back alive if possible, although they have permission to kill. The Joe team, which consists of Leatherneck, Wetsuit, Footloose, Flint, Beachhead, Lowlight, and Tunnel Rat is given the order to parachute out by Duke, and they head into the village. They hump it for a while while, and come across a village that isn't on any map. While poking around the village, they see a field full of skulls and realize that this is a re-education village that was erased from the maps, and that makes the mission a bit creepier. They camp for the night and begin setting up equipment, including radios provided to them by Anderson. Lowlight doesn't trust Anderson, and he wonders if they're being set up, especially since this is something that the CIA would have handled themselves. Flynn agrees, but says they have orders, and they're going to carry out their mission. The next day, the Joes reach the ambush site, wait it out, and see a kid riding a water buffalo down the road. He's then followed by the convoy, which is Russian-led and Russian-equipped, and has to slow down for the water buffalo. One of the Russian soldiers, the man heading up the convoy, kills the water buffalo, and the Joes spot Portland on board and turn on their radios to signal Anderson that they've made contact, but the radios give away their position. A firefight ensues. Portland takes off running. Lowlight follows him but first saves the local kid from being shot by shooting the Russian soldier and getting payback for the water buffalo as a result, and then he tells him to take off so he can stay alive. 
Flint pops red smoke while Bill pilots the Joe Tomahawk helicopter, a toy I had, by the way, and gets them out of there, with Lowlight being the last guy on. Anderson is on board the chopper sporting a black eye, and Wild Bill explains that after working him over, they got Anderson to confess that the mission was a setup. It was supposed to go wrong because Portland isn't a traitor. He's a spy for the United States, and this was the ploy to get him deeper into the KGB. Apparently, the computer chip has an undetectable computer virus that will wind up disabling any computer it's installed in. Lowlight says that he let Portland go. He couldn't kill the guy after he caught up with him, but he knocked him out and took the chips which kind of blows Anderson's operation, but considering how much they're mad at Anderson, they don't seem to mind. So I've covered this story before. Not this exact comic, of course, but more or less this story, because Doug Murray and Chuck Dixon would do variations of it on their runs in The Nom, and of course I'm covering that over on In Country, which you can also find on the Two True Freaks Network, and by the time this is released may have another episode up finally. Anyway... It's a common military-slash-action movie trope. The Special Forces team is led into a mission that will probably not go as planned for them, but it's never supposed to, because there's some CIA spook behind it. Heck, that's basically the MacGuffin in Predator, right? And also, also, what I love about this is that this is totally anyone playing with their action figures. The last G.I. Joe comic I covered was clearly a more toy commercial-oriented issue because the shuttle was the spotlight and there was one of the bigger vehicles from the 87 G.I. Joe collection that stuck around for two more years until it was discontinued in 1989. But this is not an advertisement for a toy so much as it is an adventure that you could play. Just grab the Tomahawk helicopter, a team of Joes. I mean, you don't have to have every one of these figures. And I know that I didn't have Flint or Duke, for instance, and someone to be enemies, and you go out in your backyard and boom, you're there. Which is why I love it so much. I mean, I never did take my Joes out into the backyard because I was always afraid of getting my toys too, duty, too dirty or losing them. Or, like, maybe not losing the figures of the vehicles, but, like, the little guns and weapons because they got lost easily or something. But I did play with them in my basement a lot, and these sorts of missions were perfect for that. Mariahama doesn't need to do much to differentiate between his characters here, because we all we need to see is this plot unfold as we know it's going to. Lowlight having much of the spotlight as it is works well, too, since he's supposed to be the sniper on this particular mission, and it's an assassination or attempted assassination or whatever. Plus, since this is a kid's comic, Hama finds a way around Lowlight actually killing Portland in a way that might be considered morally ambi ambiguous. It's not like the Joes haven't killed before. In fact, in issue 66, we'll see a Joe kill someone in a sniper's duel. But most of the time, those killings are justified with a legitimate reason or the concept of the greater good. Here, it's tough because... Portland has defected or said too much, and it's an assassination, and that's not necessarily the official policy of the United States government, or at least that wasn't the stated policy of the United States government at the time. Because I'm not naive enough to think that the United States government has never assassinated anyone ever, especially during the Cold War, but the Joes are supposed to be the good guys here, so Hama knows that he could either come up with a clear-cut justification for Portland being killed as in we watch him, like, kill the local kid with the water buffalo or something. So, like, you know, he's killed a child, so now there's, you know, there's time to do. Uh, there, There's justification for killing him. Or 
what he does is choice B, which is have the mission actually succeed, but have the Joes get one over on the CIA jerk by recovering the chips while letting Portland go. So in a sense, it's good, clean fun at the expense of the Soviets. Herb Trimpey is on art here, and once again, I really like it. He's inking himself as well, which is, again, one of the reasons it's so good. And I have to say that, once again, the IDW reprints are very solid with some great-looking coloring. I do kind of wish it wasn't on such thick, glossy paper, but I'm not going to hold that against them too much. I have the first two special missions trades. I know they go up to, I think, four trades, and you can find those on Amazon and in-stock trades, along with the I other IDW reprint trades, and I highly recommend them if you're looking for some solid 1980s action and action figure fun. As for me, I'll be back right after this. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire & Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show, and I want to be sure to plug my movie show, the Film & Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins Podcast is joining the Fire & Water Network, and then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna Podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, Oh Hot Moo. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Wahaha podcast. Now, here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait network. a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first. So we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben, voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? to no, it. French cannot be the language of the firewater. Enough! Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page. And folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you?
Mets challenge the Pirates today at 1.30 on Channel 9. So I've been doing a lot of looking back over the 33 episodes of this show, and well, that's the purpose of my onion on my belt rambles like this one. I've talked about movies, toys, and other memories, but at this point I really haven't touched upon one of my other major interests in 1987, which was baseball, specifically the New York Mets. And I know I've talked about it a little bit, but we're going to get a little more in deep in deeper with that. And part of the reason I haven't is because I, well, I blogged and I podcasted about the Mets before. And if you go back to the very early ep- days of Pop Culture Affidavit, you'll see a series of posts about the 1985, 86, and 88 seasons. And if you go back to episode 68 of the podcast, you will get to hear me and Paul Spataro talk about the 86 season, especially the World Series. But one thing that has come up that I never really talked about in depth is the 87 Mets season, which I paid pretty close attention to as much as I did 86 and 88 and a few seasons thereafter. I went to two games in 1987, but as opposed to some of the other seasons, can't remember what games I actually attended or when we went. But there is one game in particular that I remember vividly. Mets-Cardinals, September 11th, 1987. And it can be summed up in three words. Terry f***ing Pendleton. So up until the beginning of September 1987 was a lot like 85 and that the Cardinals were in first place for quite a bit of the season and the Mets were chasing them. The major difference, of course, was that the Mets were coming off of a World Series victory in 1986. So the 87 season was, well, we went into it thinking it was going to be a victory lap. Of course, the Mets never turned that into a true dynasty. It's something I mentioned, I think, last episode or or a couple episodes ago. But despite the lack of rings that that the team has and despite the number the fact that they don't have the uh, same number of rings that uh, the team that shall not be named has and by the way I love how that's the fallback for all of those fans anyway 1987 was the year we were hoping for a repeat instead we got that repeat of 1985 on the field and the team starting to disintegrate off the field due to drug use that yes had existed in 86 but was really starting to take its toll even more in 1987 Still, you had a career year from Terry Leach, who won 10 games in a row with an 11-1 record as a, as a starter. A solid year from Strawberry, who had 39 home runs and 104 RBIs, even if that was a there was a lot of backstage drama in his case. But then again, I was 10. I only really paid attention to the games I watched and the standings I saw on Newsday. Years later, I'd read Amazing by Peter Golenbeck, which is a great oral history of the Mets of their whole history up until the point where he wrote it. And it's well worth the read. It's also a great companion to The Bad Guys 1 by Jeff Perlman, which is another great book about the the 80s Mets. And you get this really thorough look, if you read both of them, at how deep the Mets' problems ran and why this team never really lived up to its full potential. Still, in 1987, they had a chance and they had that potential. And they were chasing, really, one of those great teams I don't like the St. Louis Cardinals, but I don't like the St. Louis Cardinals because of my personal history with the St. Louis Cardinals. The fact that they were a really, really good team. They honestly owned the mid-80s in a big way. In fact, 87 would be that last great year for that Cardinals team because they won the series in 82. They lost the series in 85 to the Kansas City Royals, and people will tell you it's because of an umpire error. And then they lost in 87 to the Minnesota Twins, uh, Kirby Puckett, Frank Viola, like that 
team, which was an amazing team on its own. Uh, but you know, this was the last year because after '87, the Cardinals really went into decline for a number of years until the uh, early to mid 2000s. And um, the National League, after the Cardinals faded, you'd get first the rise. Well, the Cubs would make an appearance in in '89 in, in the NL East uh, in the in the NLCS. But really, after the the Cubs um, in '89, you had a few years of the Pirates. And then you have uh, the Braves. And the Braves would dominate the National League for the entire decade of the 90s, uh, more or less. Or at least the NL East. Anyway, September 11, 1987. It was a Friday. The cards came to Shea in what was going to be one of the most crucial, if not one of the more crucial, if not the most crucial games, uh, series of the season. At this point, the Mets were a, were a game and a half out of first. And they had been out ten and a half back in July. Which in episode twenty eight I talked about video volunteers, and I was on the Kinders Corner show as Howard Johnson's, and I remember saying that the Mets could catch the Cardinals. My friend Tom sitting there, off camera, shaking his head and going no. And Tom was a Mets fan, but they were like really, really far out of first place uh, by that point. But they climbed up. They climbed up to one and a half games out of first. They but they needed to stay in contention, and what they needed to do to stay in contention was win this series because the last series of the season was against the Cardinals in, uh, I believe it was in St. Louis. Uh, but if they wanted to contend that weekend or be ahead that weekend, they had to win this weekend. So this September series, it didn't officially end things, but because that final nail in the coffin came in Philly on the September 30th when uh, Louis Aguayo hit a walk-off homer and that clinched everything for, for the Cardinals. But by the time the Mets got to St. Louis a few days later, you know, it was over and they finished four games back. The decline starts with Terry f***ing Pendleton. So the Mets started Ron Darling. And he gave up one hit, which was a bunt by Vince Coleman. Darling dove to first to get Coleman out, but didn't get him. And, he spra- and, and Darling sprained his thumb on the play. So Roger McDowell comes in. And in the ninth, Ozzie Smith leads off with a single, and then he would later score. With Willie McGee on base, Terry Pendleton steps up, and this happens. Mets fans looking for the final out of the ball game that will move their ball club to within one half game of St. Louis. But that one out never came. I wish I could have gotten better footage that was obviously taken from a highlight video, but that home run is the very definition of a gut punch. I remember watching it live because it was a Friday night and I was allowed to stay up later on Friday nights to watch TV, mostly Mets games. I was sitting on the couch and I have to say that I don't think I remember anything after that. I mean, the next day there would be a picture of the paper of Pendleton celebrating that home run. And I felt like I was personally being mocked. And uh, just so you know, I'm not crazy. Other fans feel the same way. Here are some of the comments on the Ultimate Mets database. From Dan, the Pendleton homer. Mets up 4-3, two outs in the ninth, McDowell pitching. Mets one game behind the cards in this first game of a crucial three-game series. Pendleton had two strikes on him, and 55,000 people started singing, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Even my friends and I in the upper deck felt confident enough to start singing along. 
Then Pendleton unloaded a line drive home run straight away center field. You can hear, you never heard 55,000 people get quiet so fast. It was sickeningly quiet in the next inning when Jesse Fiasco, obviously Jesse Roscoe, gave up the go-ahead home run to Tommy Herr. Everyone knew this was a mortal blow. The Mets never recovered this season. Joe Lanzara, this is one of the top five worst Mets losses of all time in my book. Up 4-1 in the ninth, Shea rocking and rolling. The Mets ready to close within half a game with Gooden and Cohn going in the rest of the series. We were thinking World Series repeat until Pendleton unloads in the ninth. Once he hit it, you knew we were done. You didn't even have to watch the tenth. It was just like Socius Blatt. Ah. Socia, freaking Socia home run in the 88 LCS off dock. The same empty feeling in, inside. David Kiraku, Kirasu. I was at Pizzeria Uno with a group of my friends on a Friday night. I wasn't old enough to drive, so my pop had to pick me up. When he was on his way, Pendleton stroked one to center to ruin me that night. My dad to this day calls me a jinx for get- getting him out of the house to come get me. And of course, he wasn't the biggest Orozco fan, and I was. This game has scarred me for life. Jeff in Florida says, I was at this game as well. I was 12 years old. It broke my heart. I'll never forget sitting in the upper deck and seeing a furious fight between Cards and Mets fans. When Whitey came out of the dugout to talk to his pitcher, all the Mets fans booed. And I'll never forget a guy sitting me next, next to me with a Cards hat saying, if the Mets fan keeps booing, the Cards might just win. As a 12-year-old who was a big Back to the Future fan, I later wondered if he was actually a time traveler who already knew the outcome of the game because nobody saw it coming. We had it won. I still say Davey should have stuck with Randy Myers, who was pitching great, instead of bringing Roger McDowell, who's off and on this year. I forgot, Randy Myers was like a really effective uh, relief pitcher for the Mets before they traded him away. Frank says this was out of, without a doubt the worst game in Mets history. I was an usher in a wedding that night. The groom and the ushers were all diehard Mets fans, so we kept running to the bar to watch. The score was 4-1 to one in the Mets the entire game. McDowell had two strikes on Willie McGee with two outs in the ninth. He singles up the middle to score a run. Then Pendleton. It was the most empty feeling I've ever had as a fan. I r- agree with all of those who said we knew the season was over right then. Yeah, it happened on 9-11. <laughs> And all these years later, we still ride our friend that he got married in the worst night in mess history. Johnson was an absolute fool to take out Myers, whom the Cardinals couldn't touch. The Mots. I was at this game. I never saw Shago from complete elation to absolute silence so quickly. I can still see that Pendleton shot, and it was a shot, sailing over Mookie's head and over the center field wall. Ugh. I remember, anyone remember that McReynolds almost tied it in the bottom of the 10th line drive, caught at the top of the right field wall. Finally, Mike from Brooklyn was in a bar on the Upper East Side watching this with my brother and an embittered Pirates fan. Imagine what he's like now. We were feeling this so good about our Mets until the stunning shot by Pendleton. No one in the place could believe it. My Pirates fan was ecstatic, surprised we didn't kill him. As others mentioned, you had a sense that the Mets were done. We had such a tough season, and to lose like this was brutal and a harbinger of bad times to come, i.e. the Socha home run in 1988. And yes, I realize the Mets' history being what it is, we fans have a tendency to commiserate over losses as much as we celebrate victories. And I realize that much like, oh, the Buckner play or the Steve Bartman play, there were more than enough opportunities to save the game and the season after this, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And you point to a moment where you can definitely say you would go back in time and change 
and damn the consequences because it just killed you. And that sort of blow doesn't exactly fade away. Instead, you wind up having this visceral reaction, the one I had, the same way that Red Sox fans of a certain era would have whenever Bucky Dent was mentioned. And now I suppose that the wounds inflicted by Bucky Dent or of Steve Bartman or of Bill Buckner or anyone else are lessened by the championships that were eventually won. And maybe if the Mets ever do win another World Series, it's been 30 years, people. You're approaching Rangers territory now. Get your act together and win the ring. Uh, and maybe if the Mets, so maybe if they ever do win a World Series, I'll look back on seasons past and heal the wounds that I received at the hands of Chipper Jones or Andrew Jones or Yadi and Molina or Terry f***ing Pendleton. Until then, I will seethe and I will curse, for it is my right as a fan. And it'll be your right as a listener to tune in next time to the penultimate episode of Origin Story. I'll be starting off with Marvel Age number 57, but then I will be going for the finale of our Joes in Captivity storyline with G.I. Joe, number 66. Until then, you can check me out on the blog, popcultureaffidavit.com. You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. The Facebook group is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. The Twitter feed is popaff, P-O-P-A-F-F. And as always, thanks for listening and take care.